0: Democracy. A word derived from the Greek roots demos, meaning people, and kratia, meaning power. Together, people power. Democracy is viewed as an ideology, a governmental system, or in the words of late civil rights activist John Lewis, not as a state, but as an act, for each generation to do its part. In a democracy, the people live under the laws of their choosing. By consenting to follow those laws or acting to change them, the people's rights and freedoms are protected. To many, democracy is the sacred foundation of America. To engage in civic duty, participate in elections, and consent to policy is what it means to be an American. For these people, the words United States and democracy are nearly synonyms. To others, American democracy is not, has never been, and likely never will be. For them, the phrase, United States democracy, is a contradiction. I'm Noora Ahmed. And I'm Eliza Craig. And this is Democracy, a podcast from Semester.
1: I am Professor Ben Robinson, and I am chair of the Germanic Studies Department here at IU.
0: Dr. Robinson began his research in exploring the philosophy, economics, and application of socialism. Outside of academia, he has been a longtime political activist. What is capitalism both in philosophy and applied? When we talk about what is capitalism,
1: really we're talking about a system of property relations or what Marx calls most generally a mode of production. And so Marx begins his philosophy by saying the basic tasks of human beings is our metabolism with nature, the means by which we in a natural universe produce and reproduce ourselves. The way we eat, the way we reproduce sexually, the way we reproduce ideologically, that's the basic thing for Marx that philosophy or thought has to account for. And capitalism then is one of those modes of productions, one of the ways we reproduce ourselves in the world. But, and here's Marx's big point, is that those modes always change. They're historical. They're not what Plato said were eternal forms. So you can't define a mode of production and say, this is the norm for all time. It changes. So capitalism was the mode of production that emerged in what we generally say is modernity. So around the 15th, 16th century, and it really came into its own in the 18th century, but it's a form of reproducing our material life based on the exchange of commodities. Basically what that means is that we make, not because we have a specific use for something, we don't produce because I want something so I add my labor to nature, plant an apple tree and eat the apple. I produce not for immediate use, but for sale. That's a commodity system. A commodity is something that we produce for sales or for exchange rather than use. The other trick about capitalism is that the main distinctive commodity of capitalism is labor itself. So we no longer produce for use. And in fact, in general, in capitalism, most of us have no property, which we traditionally had, and which a lot of definitions of democracy are based on, except our labor power, which we can sell as a commodity. That's the only thing we have. And so capitalism emerges with that the rise of trade and exchange in commodities and the loss of property for many and the beginning of trade in labor. And that happens around the, the 18th century in Western Europe, and then very quickly spreads over the whole globe. That's the rough outline.
0: How does capitalism bleed into facets of American society? Think politics, religion, healthcare, education? And
1: education. So we were talking about its emergence around property, and we were talking about small farms and the yeoman farmer and the image of the property owner as the basis of American democracy that Jefferson, maybe more than anyone, lends to our national mythology. But when we look at today, we find that, you know, capitalism has a much different form. I think it's still capitalism because it's still about the exchange of commodities and it's still about wage labor, which is commodity labor. And those are the basic features that are still there but property has otherwise changed in various ways. So labor has changed. A lot of it is around online knowledge work or information society or social media. Those are the booming companies, even in the pandemic, their stocks are shooting up. So labor has changed, but the forms of property are no longer small holdings that certain people might have, holdings of land or ownership of slaves or whatever the forms of ownership were back in the 18th century, but are now corporate ownership. And the distinct thing about corporate ownership is it allows much more capital because we can all invest in something. And the reason we do, that's a very restricted we, but the reason we do to the extent we do buy in is because we're not directly liable. So if the company blows up half the world, we can lose all our invested assets, but we can't be sued ourselves. So that's what the law allows corporations to do. And it allows lots of people to invest in them. And the size of capital of investments increases until you get to a society like ours where to manage capital you can't do it just with markets you need the state you need a lot of government institutions and that's where this idea of bleeding over we're going much beyond the market because suddenly our state has to give us the statistics it has to give the laws it has to give labor protection it has to give banking regulations it has to give environmental regulations taxation, all those things arise. And I think those are part of our life every day. So when we look at things like the university, even a public university, which you think, oh, public, you know, it's paid by the state. But IU gets 17% at most, maybe closer to 14% of its appropriations from the state. And everything else is tuition and investments from the IU and foundation endowments. So that means The school has to respond not only to its stakeholders, to us as students and teachers and buildings and grounds and RPS, but it has to respond to the market. And that puts big constraints on how it can operate. If its assets lose value or if people don't choose to come because it doesn't have a nice enough rec center or can't market itself successfully, then it falls apart. But that's no longer an educational mission. So that's one example in education where we really see the market. So market society is another word I'll use for capitalism too. So you see the markets starting to bleed into things like education. And we can also find that in things even like how we raise our family and child because now most families are two earner families. So often mothers who traditionally were at home, are no longer at home and that's because of new market rules where in order to get a living wage you need two earners and a family so their capitalism bleeds over right into our nuclear family form so there are lots of ways in which
0: it does it now almost everything is a commodity like i think about my own childhood and how i was raised i'm being raised to be a commodity to this institution, and the institution may react to certain things in certain ways to increase their capital. For example, the institution just renamed the former Wildermuth Intramural Center to the Bill Garrett Intramural Center, who was the first Black basketball player in the Big Ten, which is almost a strategic financial move in response to what society is demanding. So it's almost like every single thing is structured to further capital.
1: On the one hand, it's true. Everything is about the market. So even something which we should celebrate, the renaming of the Athletic Center from a racist wilderness to Garrett to celebrate the racial diversity of our country, even that has a marketing aspect to it. But we still do creative stuff with it. So I often like to say that the modern state and capitalism grew up together, but they grew up with tensions to them. When we talk about democracy, we do want to recognize that there are forces that are contrary to capitalism, that are against it. And then there are forces that want to reestablish the dominance of capitalism. And in fact, I want to talk about three forces and I want to distinguish them as the market, the state, and then the third one is the tricky one, what is it? The term I like to use is public, when we talk with academic social theorist Michel Foucault, we could talk about as power. You have market on one side, state on the other, and power in the middle. To go back to the Wydermuhth changing to the Garrett Center, you could say, when we look at democracy and capitalism today, and I'll put it really crassly, you could say, does democracy conform to the market or the market conform to democracy? And that way, it's not just the man is making us do one thing and we have no agency. We're all just plugged into a machine and nothing matters. So even the multiracial protests now are just in vain because the market has recaptured them. But that there is an actual struggle because there are more than one force in play. So that's always important to remember when we talk about capitalism and democracy, that there are these multiple forces. So I think you're right. On the one hand, when you look at these phenomena, markets permeate everything, even things that we conceive of as so personal. They're non-exchange value. They're values like dignity and justice. The market finds its way into that. So I think that's right. But we also have ways of pushing back. So it's not a one-way street. That's how I think about that.
0: So the pushing back is the middle, the power, the public. Well, right.
1: Yes, you're picking up on that term. And why I put it so contested is I like emphasizing the word public. It's also an 18th century term that has gone through many changes, just like property has gone through changes since the 18th century. So in the German tradition, it emerged in the Enlightenment, the German word, which means the openness. In the 18th century, it was very small. And it was the realm of, of scholars mainly. So universities have a lot to do with democracy. Democracy. And then it spread through newspapers and coffee shops and things like that. And it created this discourse that was neither directly related to profit, but it also wasn't part of the state. So where do you fit this explosion of language and opinions? And, and that is, I think, a space where we can figure out how we want market and state to interact, or we can create a space between market and state. We talk briefly about ideologies too, like how do we get buy-in, what are the stories we tell ourselves yeah. when we tell stories about Lincoln and Jefferson and the Founding Fathers, and we even like to play Hamilton when we just take Founding Fathers who are often slave owners and whatnot and make them into people of color. What are we doing ideologically with that? The more we talk about the public as an ideological space and say, well, it's essentially being colonized by markets or by the state. Then we're looking at a space of conformity. When we talk about it as a public, we tend to look at it as a space of resistance. But it's the same space we're talking about there. But it's just important to me that we see this third space, whatever we call it, and that we recognize it as a terrain of conflict. Because if we just tell either a left-wing story about the market taking over everything or a right-wing story about the state leviathan taking all our freedom, we're missing the biggest part of the picture where we can actually act. And that's the space of publicness or power depending how you want to see it. That's a changing space, and we can give it various nuances. You know, you're faced with that challenge, right? What do you do with this public space? Do you even perceive it, or do you rush to a job, or do you find some place where you can articulate yourself? How do you become part of that space? Right, yeah. And it's a hard question, right, especially for you guys. I've got my perch here, but how do you guys participate in a public? That's, you know, it's
0: it's a hard question. How does capitalism honor or disparage an ideal democracy?
1: Well, well, see, now that's the thing is, I'm not sure there is an ideal democracy. That would be the problem. I mean, it's again, like an ideal form of property or an ideal mode of production. I think the thing about democracy is that it's also always in time, right? That there are different forms of it. So if we go back to the ancients, I mean, the word is a Greek word, demos, kratia, the people and the power, you know, you could say democracy is people power. But then you wonder, well, what does that mean? For the Greeks, it really meant participation, at least for the white male property owners of Greece, so a very limited franchise. But I want to emphasize less the limitation, but, but this idea of participation. But as capitalism emerges in the 18th century, it really takes on a different cue. So for Hobbes, the idea is, people can be democratic in civil society. And just to define that, that's sort of the space where we pursue our private end, anything from family to business to farms, or Hobbes used the word industry, where we just do the things of regular life and accumulate our living space. And he wanted to free up that space, but he thought the best way to do it was having an absolutely authoritarian state. So the state takes care of everything, We give our freedom, our right to kill each other or whatever. You give that over to the state. We say, I'm giving up my freedom in order to subordinate myself to the law. But in exchange, I get under the law this chance to earn money. And so you could say, well, democracy then is pushed out of the state in that form, the initial forms of liberalism. But then you have Locke saying, no, you know, the state of nature wasn't so bad. We can always break that contract. We, we go to government as long as the government protects business and doesn't do anything more than that and asks our consent, then we can have government. So the state, as capitalism emerges, is not conceived of as the sort of robust place with a public in it. So that's why public sort of gets pushed out, but this minimal state, which just gets the consent, not the participation of the government. So those are two different ideas of democracy. Do you participate in it, or do you just give your consent to it? And I think once you get to a contemporary feel, what does it feel like in democracy? I think for most of us, we have to rush to a job, we have to do something quickly. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I think Black Lives Matter's protests emerge so robustly now, because jobs are so constrained, you know, many people are unemployed, we have time to go out and experience this public. But usually in modern capitalism, we could say, well, democracy is a game elites play to decide which member of the elite will govern by means of a vote of the people being governed, right? That's no one's ideal of democracy, but it's probably a pretty adequate description. We're not being asked to participate. In fact, when we do participate too much, that's often when state violence comes down and says, no, too much, you're going to make our markets unprofitable. And bam, we get cracked down on. So yeah, so what would be the ideal? I guess it's the idea of that space of the public to work out what would the ideal be? What do we want it to be. And so we can talk about that. But the first point I'd make in response to the question is to say democracy is changing through time. And those two forms of participatory versus minimal consent are the two poles. And we could think of what would we want in democracy between those two poles or at one of those two poles or in addition to those.
0: In considering consent versus participation, I can see how capitalism limits participation because it ties everybody up in jobs because that's the only way that people can survive. And then it it limits consent. How does it limit consent? I guess I don't know. I guess I don't know that side.
1: Right. I mean, we have forms, like we have electoral forms, and we express our consent every four years to our federal government. Now, it's true we have lots of local elections, so we can participate in those, although we have very low participation levels in the U.S. I'm confusing things by using the word participating in an electoral process. I don't mean that as the robust participation. Right. That That's about. where I'm, yep. Yeah, but but consent, we, we have, I would actually say even more than election, we've reached a point in information society, in our modern technological society, where we feel like citizens if we answer a survey. I mean, I know as chair of a department, I have to send out surveys all the time, and I can't stand filling them out. Not only with work, but even political surveys, even surveys where I share the politics of the surveyor. It's just sort of like, I don't think that's citizenship. But that is more or less the way we are solicited around our consent. The ideal that emerged way back in ancient Greece, but really became an ideal that was championed in the emergence of liberal democracy in the 18th century. I use the French word because I don't want to imply immigration status, but a citoyen, a citizen, that you're a full participant in an emerging public. Now, instead of being citizens, we're asked to be consumers. If we're buying stuff, we like it, or if we're answering the Google survey, we're revealing our preferences somehow. And in fact, that's a term of art that the economist Paul Samuelson used. He said, well, we have all sorts of stated preferences when we are dealing with politics in some limited way, like we might state a preference for racial justice, but buy a house in an ethnically homogenous neighborhood where we feel there are good schools. And Paul Samuelson called that our revealed preferences rather than our stated preferences. So consent, often in our society, when we're not asked to be citizens but a consumer, consent is our revealed preferences, not even our stated preferences. As long as we reveal a preference to continue buying, the state's not worried about our protests. So, yeah.
0: Totally. Yeah, so it's
1: an important question. Where do we, how do we express consent now?
0: That's huge. This is clearing up a lot of the discussions I've been having this summer, like talks with my dad where we're in our predominantly white neighborhood and right by a school that I went to because our property taxes pay and it's a great school. Even though we may state and I may study a specific thing, I'm continually participating and consenting to a system that goes directly against a lot of what I stand for. What I still call the police, that's consenting. Um, So that's just, that's, that's very clarifying. So I appreciate that. What is the relationship between unionism and capitalism?
1: Nora, it does bring the two together in a way. It's funny, I recently taught a course on utopias, but I don't consider myself a utopian. In other words, I like my politics to be real, if you will. And so often when you just pose well what would be the ideal alternatives and we sort of tinker around and say well this would be my vision I find that all too abstract like what is what does that even mean also to bring in Eliza something that you just said about our revealed preferences our neighborhoods our good schools you know they also implicate us with reproducing the system. But I would say rather feeling guilty. I mean, I don't like feeling guilty all the time. I have a celebratory sense of populist politics, that there's something irresistible about the political struggles we're involved in, and there's something gratifying about our solidarities and powerful. Even if they can be dangerous, even they could be the wrong solidarities, racial solidarities rather than class solidarities. So I'm not saying it's easy, but I do still find something very powerful about that. So it's not saying, well, there would be this ideal and we're not living in the ideal and I'm implicated. I would say that doesn't make me feel guilty. That's just a beginning recognition. We're all implicated subjects. And in fact, I don't like the sort of politics which has a nostalgia for a purity. I mean, there's a lot of powerful aspects to intersectionality where we think of the multiple identities and positionalities which we all concretely occupy. But there is also a sense where it's looking for the most purely exploited as a place of almost innocence. And often, I think it's somewhat dangerous on the left today, the nostalgia for that innocence of I'm not implicated in anything. I'm exploited by everything. I think we're all implicated. And that idea of an implication rather than being something that defeats us can give us a sense of what are the concrete challenges. So now to get to the question of unionism. Unionism is something where we really think of who we are in terms of how we can construct that word we. So how do we construct we? Whenever I use we, I'm a white male, so people might say, well, you know, that's a traditional we of power. And I think it's right to question it. But I don't think it's right to say, therefore, any we is just a face in differences that we have to maximally expose. Because if we do that, I do think it's very easy for, let's say, a human resources department of a corporation to say, well, we'll inscribe the multiple pronouns, we'll inscribe the racial differences, the gender differences, the generational differences, we'll inscribe them in our HR protocols, and we'll manage people, we'll serve that management function for you. And I think corporations have been very successful at that, also in this moment. And so the idea of creating a we isn't to efface differences, but on the basis of our differences, find out what we have in common. And so that's what unionism does. You know, unionism emphasizes the class aspect of it. It emphasizes things like unequal access to the resources by which we produce our material lives, and asks how can we come together as a we, around demands on the basis by which we have the means to live a happy and fulfilling life. So to make it one step more concrete, what makes it really interesting in this moment of political protest is that rather than looking for the least implicated position by virtue of multiple exploitations, unionism looks at what are the fragile commonalities I'll give a real concrete example that disappointed me with the left. In San Francisco, during the protests after George Floyd was killed, the BLM protests, there were protesters, and I'm not saying they're representative, Mm -hmm. but they tore down the statue of Ulysses S. Grant in Golden Gate Park. And I thought, well, Grant. Why Grant? I mean, Grant was the commander who not only led the Union victory in the South, but as he marched South, when he would come to a plantation, he would immediately publicly appropriate the plantation, immediately declare slaves war contraband, and liberate the slaves. And this was all before Lincoln's proclamation. And that was the biggest public appropriation of private property besides the Russian Revolution. I mean, it was this massive transfer of property. And that was huge. And what happened in the wake of it, called Reconstruction, was the first attempt on world historical scale of building a multiracial democracy. And what that meant as the Freedmen Bureaus were set up, as these new state congresses or state House of Representatives were elected, was finding the commonality between blacks and whites. And a lot of historians say it's not that whites suddenly got over their racism and were no longer implicated subjects, but that they found these common moments by which they could participate in power. So not just get their consent, they could be participants together in power and it was super fragile and ultimately was destroyed by not only the south and jim crow and the black codes which took years to emerge but was destroyed by workers being offered little benefits or offered homestead property, and it broke that solidarity. So to create that solidarity between races, genders, sexualities, between the populace, the demos, democracy, in a way that's not just asking for consent, but looking for joint participation in the public, is a hard job. And how do we create that we? And going from the 1860s and Reconstruction to the post-war period, after the New Deal, there was another attempt at, Multiracial unionism. And there's a book by a scholar named Robert Korstad about tobacco workers and Ukapawa, which was one of the first really multiracial unions in the post-war period. And it was destroyed by tobacco, partly by just offering the white workers, but not the black YMCA memberships, if they don't join the union. (laughs) And it's something so trivial, but so close to people. You you're raising a family, you're also hard-pressed, even if you have some significant privileges as a white person. But for that moment, of public participation in a multiracial democracy would be destroyed by that. It's so sad, but it makes us understand what is the task of creating this public we that includes both the differences, but also the solidarity of the demos. That's the challenge. So that's where I see the heart of unionism. I haven't talked about it all that concretely, but I mean, we could today talk about the fight for 15 being led by SEIU. We could talk about it concretely when you look at what is the importance of unionism in today's social movements, it's good to think about that background. What was Reconstruction about in terms of our democracy and this third term of, of a public And what was multiracial unionism after the war in the wake of the New Deal? You know, the, the March on Washington where King gave the I Have a Dream speech, that was organized by A. Philip Randolph, the president of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. So it was called the March for Jobs and Justice. It was a union march, and we forget that all too much. Just the role that labor played in the civil rights movement and in creating again, creating solidarity. So not only creating space for subjects who long to be unimplicated, pure subjects haven't done anything wrong, just to suffer. And I don't think that's the goal. So there's yeah. a little edge that I want to get into that comment there.
0: You mentioned that the multiracial union ended with just giving YMCA memberships to the white workers. Well,
1: if they didn't join the union, they were given the membership. So it was used by tobacco to break the union. So to use minor differentials to break the solidarity, to say, if you're a worker of this status, we'll pay as your company for a YMCA membership, but not if you join the union. Gotcha. So The union was struggling for both together to, to not exploit the small differentials, whereas Duke saw we can exploit those differentials to break people apart.
0: Gotcha. Do okay. you think that unions have the power to unify people on a class basis and really change these systems today?
1: I do. I don't think alone. I think unions are one vehicle among other vehicles. If we go back to the idea that not only property has changed forms, but also labor has changed forms, the way we work is no longer in industrial factories where the traditional idea of a union emerged. And I think often... Our struggles aren't about a collective bargaining agreement, but to take SEIU in the fight for 15. SEIU is the Service Employees International Union. So it was a union of public workers, which I think emerged in Wisconsin in the early 20th century, but didn't get collective bargaining rights even under the National Labor Relations Act until much later. But SEIU organized public employees. They've since been thinking a lot about how to expand their base. And the fight for 15 is the 15 dollar per hour minimum wage and a lot of the people who are there organizing are fast food workers or workers in restaurants because you guys and people listening to the podcast might be working you know over a summer or during a term and they're not like old industrial jobs we we pass through them and we move on to other things So any collective bargaining agreement we reached with, you know, a small restaurant in Bloomington, is going to be so short term. So SEIU realizes that we need to also make demands not only on the bargaining unit, the factory or the firm, but also on the state. So the idea of Fight for 15 is to have a law, not a contract, but a law. And the law would say $15 per hour minimum. So once you understand that unionism is addressing the state, you don't have to be in the union then. I could also be out on the street for $15 an hour wage, or out on the street for contingent workers and people who are classified as contractors, if they're working in the gig economy, or if they're working as an au pair or a nanny care worker. These are people who don't have large collective bargains, but I can show solidarity for all sorts of people through other means, but also through union. So we have to find the forms. If you go back to the question, what is the value of union? I think it is, though, a form that since Reagan and since the destruction of unionism, um, large, largely since the 70s, the left has lost one of the forms. So sometimes what, what comes in its place can be forms of protest with very little leadership and structure and power for self sustaining. So I think unions are one way to think about yeah, how can we? create sustained structures of cooperation and solidarity. But I think there are others. I think there can be party structures. I think schools and education are powerful structures if we can reclaim them from market forces. Let me throw this one in. The master, you know, that's an example. It's not helping anyone department's enrollments and not, you know, bringing in the tuition money. It's, you know, trying to create a public space that goes beyond the narrow interests of one prof's enrollments or one department's enrollments or one student's major or something, and really address, you know, an idea that's important for this idea of a public and to make public something more than just power, to make it meaningful to those who participated.
0: I really appreciate the conversation and and your focus on the public power because I almost think, like, Nora, every college student, particularly in the School of Arts and Sciences, goes through an existential crisis of, like, the discovery of capitalism and Marxism. And you're like, holy shit, my life doesn't matter. So I think that, like, (laughs) this conversation... Like, my dreams were, like, created by, like, these big corporations. (laughs) So I would, like, fall into line. But it's like, what if I don't dream of working? (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. It's it's so hopeless if that's you know. But there is. I mean, it's hard to participate in the public. But if you guys feel despair, I mean, that's what you're doing now. And to me, that expresses you know whatever implications in the system that you also have, and I certainly have. Right. Expresses an energy that we want something more, and those are values that capitalism or markets don't necessarily recognize. But I think we assert, and those are the values of dignity, of exchange, of ideas, of participation of building a we that isn't necessarily automatic whatever you're working through and struggling but this is huge you're doing something in the moment so okay yeah, so i'd like to affirm that and i'm glad to be part
0: of it too so
1: yeah so thank you
0: thanks so much to dr robinson for participating in the semester podcast democracy the music for the intro and outro is moonrise by chad crouch provided by freemusicarchive.org under a non-commercial license thanks so much for listening this has been an episode of of Democracy, a podcast by Themester.